You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I dream the dream of days to come. Where sponsorship is high and money is forthcoming. That's beautiful, Kevin. I really added a voice onto that one, too. <laughs> I really was trying to go for something there. Listeners, we love creating this podcast, but it does cost money. Please don't make me sell my Angel record. Oh, my gosh. The original cast recording of Angel. That, like, nobody has. Nobody has it. If you like what we are doing and want us to keep doing more of it, please head over to patreon.com. What? That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Pat Rion. I feel like Pat Rion. <laughs> oh, yeah, Pat Rion. Rion. Pat Rion. Yeah, and once you're there, search for Behind the Curtain Broadway's Living Legends. And of course, we don't expect you to give without receiving some great rewards. Such rewards include behind-the-scenes videos, shout-outs on future episodes, mm. or episodes, depending on what part of the country you're from, because <laughs> I said episodes, and early access to some of our podcasts. Hell, for the right price, Kevin and I will come to your apartment and act out all of Agnes of God. <laughs> so head over, friends, to P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com to help us out. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain and make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. I, sometimes I don't take a breath. I know. And I, I know. I get nervous. Air. I get a little nervous. And right. follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to our podcasts on Broadway World and Stitcher. Growing up, many of us used to read with envy the escapades of Eloise at the Plaza. But for today's guest, the fictional Eloise and her cavorting around the Plaza <laughs> Hotel is nothing compared to his own adventures at the Algonquin Hotel. The Algonquin Hotel has long been one of the most sophisticated homes for those with a wit and intelligence that we can only envy. Uh, from, speak for yourself. <laughs> from Alexander Wolcott to Robert Benchley to George S. Kaufman to Harper Marx. Anyone who was anyone in the early part of the 20th century and middle parts made mm. the Algonquin Hotel their home. And because the grandparents of today's guest owned the Algonquin Hotel, he had a front row to all of it. From being promised a role in a new musical called Camelot, to hearing about how Marilyn Monroe flashed his grandma, can you imagine? Today's guest is a treasure trove of memories, anecdotes, and snapshots of a time gone by. Here, author of the fantastic book, The Algonquin Kid, is Michael Colby. Happy to make your acquaintance. Welcome, Mr. Colby. Okay, so Michael, this book, you can't put it down. It's an absolutely interesting, fascinating journey about a time gone by and the fact you lived through it. You yes, my, 
My middle name is even Elihu. <laughs> Just thanks, Eloise. Uh-huh. Um, this book is so absolutely fascinating. For our listeners who are unaware, what is the Algonquin Hotel, or what was the Algonquin well, Hotel? Well, it's still around. It's a landmark. Mm-hmm. It was built in 1902, and it became, um, through um, its first major owner, Frank Case, um, a mecca for people in the theater. Um, he he arranged for the famous Algonquin Roundtable, where wits would meet every week. Uh, people like uh, Edna Ferber, and Dorothy Parker, and Alexander Walcott, and... Um, George S. Kaufman, and they'd uh, say things um, just outrageous. Um, And then um, after um, the the, the place, um, during World War II, it was in disrepair, and um, a second owner came in when Frank Case died, and that was my grandfather, Ben Bodney, um, in 1986, and he and my grandmother, Mary Bodney, owned it until um, from 1946 to 1987. Oh, my gosh. Which is like, do the math, 40-some years. I mean, yes, that, that, yes. that is a, a, a quite a period of time to be the face of the I hotel. Know. And until um, my book, um, there was very little about that period. Yeah. And it was very important in many ways, um, b- besides the fact that it became uh, the place to be for international uh, celebrities and um, uh, people in the arts. It was also uh, where my grandparents um, made the Algonquin a haven for victims of McCarthyism mm-hmm. and uh, opened doors to American, uh, to African Americans before it was... Uh, it was rightfully right, done, right. and uh, just there's so so many things that, that that happened during my grandparents. Why why do you think that people gravitated, other than the reasons you just gave? But why do you think that you know, stage people and writers and all these 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 intellectual people gravitated there? Well, as far as Broadway, it helped that it was located on West 44th Street. True. And just in walking distance, right. and a lot of people during tryouts would just li- live there. Right. We didn't have. Thirty, you know, Westons on Forty Third Street. Right, like we right. Do now. Yeah, yeah. It was. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, yeah. like now there's hotels everywhere. I mean, yeah. a bit, I know. But, um, you know, as, as I was saying earlier, um, the plaza and the Waldorf are now condos, um, and the Algonquin is one of the last legendary hotels, right. that and the Chelsea and maybe one or two others, right. and it's, it's still, it's, it's run by the Marriott, and they're very nice to me because they love the book. <laughs> well, yeah, it's good advertising. <laughs> well they, right. yeah. This is one of the first interviews I haven't had at the Algonquin. Hey! Oh. <laughs> Just spice it up a little yes. bit. Yeah, and Michael, diversify. <laughs> Go to uh, Shuttle. <laughs> this is yeah. Come to Shuttler Studios, where, where you know I've rehearsed show, the many room. shows here. Been yes, here yes. Um, the individuals that you mentioned that comprise the Algonquin Roundtable. We had uh, you had George Kaufman, Robert Benchley, Edna Ferber, Alexander Wolcott. These are mm-hmm. some of the greatest minds uh, that are going to really create a really 20th century American point of view and, and define it as type of style and wit that people only aspire to. Why did they come to the Algonquin beyond the fact that they were invited to? What else is it about this hotel? That's well, so- they got free meals and they got good publicity. Mm. Um, but um, there was a whole different generation when my grandparents were there and that included uh, Thornton Wilder mm-hmm. um, and uh, Mary Chase, the author of mm-hmm. Harvey, um, and uh, Leonard and Lowe, mm-hmm. and the list just goes on and on. L- Olivier, um, Noel Coward, uh, Angela Lansbury, Tallulah Bankhead, yeah. and Arnold Schwarzenegger all spent their first and, night and, in New York And there. in your book, 
because you spent so much time living there uh-huh. with your grandparents. Yes. And and I'm I, we have to ri- ride this fine line of like not going through the entire book and talking about everything, uh-huh. but but still talking about some of these things. Uh, you rub shoulders with all of them. Well, I don't know. Uh, yeah. They, some of them had dandruff, so I stayed yeah. away. <laughs> Because you lived there for a while. Yes, yes. I knew personally. And I actually ended up, one of the greatest gifts was um, people like Mary Chase ended up collaborating with me. And Dale Wasserman, who wrote Man of La Mancha. Was a a mentor, in a way, to you, what did you say? Both of them. Yeah. Were you aware of the hotel's legacy when you first started going there? Or was this just grandma and grandpa's place? It was grandma and grandpa's place. (laughs) But I became gradually very aware of it and felt very, very blessed. I mean, um, and it was also an object lesson in what uh, goes on in the life in the theater because right. I saw people on the rise and I saw people on uh, on decline and it's it really was a good um, guideline for me when I got into the theater later to, yeah. to, to take it all in stride. And where did you grow up? Because uh, you, you, at the start of your childhood, you were kind of you would come into the city and visit with them and come out. But where where was home for you before that? Well, actually, I lived in New York mm-hmm. um, uh, until I was two, and then we moved to the Five Towns, Long Island, mm. and um, I had other adventures there. Um, but my father, Sidney Colby, um, was a manager at the Algonquin. He would take me in for trips to come and pend a night with my grandparents. And um, when I was um, 18, my college years, I moved in permanently until I got married. Brilliant. Wow. Well, yeah, I got a whole rehearsal space for nothing, too. I mean, come on. I'm jealous. Uh, I'm jealous. Now, what did Grandma and Grandpa do? Where did their money come from? Um, my grandfather was an oil man, a southern Jewish oil man. Um, he grew up in Tennessee, as unlikely as it is to use the word Tennessee and Torah in the same sentence. Um, and then um, he moved to Charleston, South Carolina, where my grandparent, my grand, great-grandparent, uh, Eliu Mezo, after whom I'm named, he had one of the first kosher delis in, uh, in, in the South. And that's where George Gershwin used to hang out when he was writing his new show, researching for Porgy and Bess. And they would hear songs like Summertime at their home. And someone could have gone on a date with George Gershwin, is that correct? Oh, yes, yes. My aunt Sid, who was like a second mother to me, um, she was so... So ingenuous, and she didn't know about who, how famous he was. And he took her out. He was so, um, he was, he was so th- thrilled to meet someone who just liked him for himself. Mm-hmm. And he took her out for ice cream, and uh, she br- he brought her a chocolate ice cream cone, and she sent it back. She wanted vanilla, and we always feel that we could have been part of the Gershwin family if not for a flavor. <laughs> Rhapsody in vanilla. Yes. That's, what, that's what she was looking for. Uh-huh. Oh, my gosh. That's so funny. Who was the first uh, celebrity that you saw at the Algonquin that you really recognized as, oh, I know, I know that person? Well, I remember one that I embarrassed the family with. That's oh, okay. okay. I had seen um, Rapunzel on Shirley uh, Temple's storybook. 
and there was a woman playing um, the uh, mother, you know, the stepmother, the demon mother. Yes. Um, and later on, she became famous in a TV series for playing a similar role. And I saw her in the lobby. It was Agnes Moorhead. And I started yelling, there's the mean old witch. There's the mean old witch. And my grandmother had to pull me aside. Agnes was not happy. <laughs> she got that a lot. Yes. Spell on you. <laughs> I would have been cursed from that day. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Um, so, listening to My Fair, w- were you around when My Fair Lady was? Oh making? yes, that was the second show I saw. Remember, my brother did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No. Um, but I, uh, w- I mean, th- there are many stories about it. But um, w- um, Lerner and Lowe um, had a piano um, in the floor below my grandparents. My grandparents had half the tenth floor that they converted into a suite. And um, in the middle of the night, my grandfather heard them on the piano, keeping him up with all that music. And he called down to the operator and he said, can you tell them to stop it? I wouldn't mind if this was something good, but this is just noise. And they were writing, I could have danced all night. <laughs> different strokes yeah. for different folks. What was, were grandpa, grandma and grandpa, were they big theater lovers? Yes. Yeah. Uh, my grandmother rarely saw us, went to a show she didn't love. Right. My grandfather used to say things like, I forgot something. I forgot to stay home. <laughs> I, I just say classic. Yeah. I, I read that and I stole that line from your grandfather. Yeah. I used it last night at a show, so I'm so sorry. <laughs> so I'm going to owe grandpa royalty. But my grandmother just loved every show, even the one she slept through. Yes. <laughs> That's so sweet. Now, what's also really cool though, Michael, is how, how many Broadway shows were you seeing at this time. Oh, I saw the whole golden age. I was, I can't tell you how lucky I was. Yeah. And then we would go backstage and I, I would see like the musical version of Gone with the Wind from the sidelines. Oh, like the Herald Rome? No. Yes. Yeah, I saw it. I saw it. Because um, it wasn't in America. No, it, it was with uh, with Lizzie Ann Warren. I saw in it in DC? England. Oh, I saw it in Broadway. England. Right. And um, and Lizzie Ann Warren's um, mic was not uh, was not turned off when she wasn't unhappy backstage one day. Ooh. Ooh, but um, well, that's not in the book. Yeah, but um, I saw. Oh, uh, I saw the famous um, uh, horse who uh, made his own comment on opening night. (laughs) Mailed, I think you would say. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my gosh. What were some of the greatest um, performances you saw that did not get the credit that they deserved that you felt should have been more appreciated? Or was there something where you go, I'm loving this? Well, there are many performances. In in my shows and other shows... That's great. um, I think um, one of the... Great performances I saw that did not win the Tony Award was Penny Fuller in Applause. Uh. Because I, All About Eve is my favorite show, and um, I saw it on its opening night in Baltimore, um, and then I saw it on its opening night in New York. And uh, Penny Fuller replaced someone, and um, it was, it was a revelation to see how a, ch- a show could change from one performance. And even better was seeing her playing opposite Ann Baxter. Oh. 
because they resembled each other in the original um, intent when um, when Anne Baxter was cast was that she looked like Claudette Colbert and they were supposed to be sides of the same coin and that was realized when the she two ends yes. she's really her now right yeah. yes yeah oh, that's staggering Ooh. Claudette Colbert was supposed to be Eve ha- um, Margot Margot yes. Channing yes she had a slip disc or something and she had to drop out and they brought in Betty Davis huh. I never knew that. Right. Oh, my gosh. And that's the main reason why Ann Baxter, as brilliant as she was, she was cast because of that resemblance. Oh, that's such a good performance. Were you a big big movie buff growing up? Sure, sure. What were some of your favorites? Well, I have the old standbys all about Eve and um, uh, It's a Wonderful Life before anyone knew it. Because when I was growing up, nobody knew that film. And, And Sounder, Cicely Tyson, and... And I did. I loved the wrong box, which I. That was the first musical the I did. The wrong box. Yes. What is that? I don't know. The that. wrong box is um, um, by um, Bert Shevelov and Larry Gilbart. Oh yes, you talk about it yes. in the book. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it was a hilarious film. And my brother Douglas and I tried to turn into a musical, and that's and it was sort of like a predecessor to Charlotte Sweet, my English musical. Mm-hmm. Yes, and it was heavily influenced by a Julie Stein musical, Darling of the Day, uh, that oh, I loved. Another great one. Yeah, yeah. Were you musical? I mean, did you play piano? Did I did. I played several um, instruments badly. Um, my wife is the pianist in the family, okay. and Douglas was a great pianist. And um, I got by, but uh, it was lyrics that were um, came nat- doing what comes naturally. Did you ever think about maybe performing, singing, Oh, I, I did that. You I've did. done that, yes, and, yes. And was there ever... I know a- there are better people, but I've done it. <laughs> So you were never like, oh, well, maybe when, I'll be an actor for a living. Let's go into the Camelot story. Yeah. Um, Frederick Lowe and Alan J. Lerner were staying at the Algonquin, and they were breaking in their new show, Camelot. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so Frederick Lowe looked at me. I was a very cute little kid, and he said, you know, you'd be great to play the page in Camelot. And um, I went to summer camp and told everyone I was going to be the page in Camelot, and I yeah. got all the leads in camp. <laughs> and then... <laughs> crestfallen when I got back in the fall I was told by my parents that I should not go into show business and they told me, and my grandmother told me stories about how everyone had heart attacks and were laid up in the <laughs> hospital during Camelot and they didn't want that to happen to me but my grandmother as a consolation prize made me her date on the opening night of Camelot oh. were you okay watching somebody else play your role actually I met the person who played the role years later oh I, I, I thought maybe I imagined it, but there was a page, and um, I just was just so enraptured. Um, I mean, that was about the, my first opening night, and that was a classic night, and I got to see all the stuff that was cut days later. <laughs> really? Yes. Oh, yeah, because do, do you know the story? No, I, I'm actually not familiar. Oh, it familiar. went to repairs I'm... afterwards because it got mixed to negative reviews. Oh. And um, then... Uh, After some, it opened. It was one of these shows that had a very lucky break. It was shown on the Ed Sullivan show, like The Fantastics, which was doing middling business. Yeah. There was a TV version, and that's what put it over, and Kennedy's publicizing it. And they went back, to, and Moss Hart, who'd been very sick, mm-hmm. went back to the drawing board and edited it down into a different form that was um, more acceptable to the public. And then uh, those combination of factors turned it into a hit. Didn't know. Isn't that great? Yeah, that's 
Yeah. You, because you were rubbing shoulders with so many of these stars, or the ones who, you know, who didn't have dandruff, like you said earlier, <laughs> which I think is so funny, um, do you still get starstruck? Oh, absolutely. And not necessarily the ones you think. Same. I think, yeah, that's so. so. You're in good company. For instance, um, <clears throat> I adored the original um, Golda in Fiddle on the Roof, Maria Karnilova. Yes. And especially in Zorba. And um, I was backstage at No No Nanette. Bert Chevalov, who always stayed in the hotel, wrote, well, adapted and directed it. And he got us um, passes to go backstage and meet Ruby Keeler. And I was saying all the wrong things to her. I was saying, it was such a, it was such a treat to see you. It brought back, I, I was 16, 17, it brought back all the memories. And um, she was already giving me nasty looks. And then Maria Karnilova and George S. Irving walked in and I yelled, Maria Karnilova! <laughs> and I sort of dropped Ruby like, 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 like a hot <laughs> potato. And, um, Years later, I worked with Maria Karnilova and with George S. Irving, but Maria and I became the Mutual Admiration Society. Oh, that's, well, that's really special. For yeah. our listeners who never got to see her live, what was it that made her so special? She was larger than life. She had these incredible eyes that were sad and funny at the same time. And she, she well, I mean, she was a Jerome... Robin's dancer, and she has incredible grace, and she wasn't a great singer, but she was a great character interpreter of song, and um, she just could have you rolling in the aisles and moved at the same time. It was like Davy Burns, right. someone who was very special yeah. and of the Broadway world. Yeah. Yeah. And you sh- in that her work in that Zorba, I, you're right. It's, it's, oh God, I, I only yes. know it from hearing it, but it's just yeah. stunning. It was it was haunting. Yeah. It was haunting. It was it was it was falling down funny and heartbreaking at the same time. Underappreciated show and score, I want to say Zorba. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think. So. Yeah. Did you get a chance to see when Encores just did it a few years no, ago? No, I didn't. I didn't. It's a really lovely production. Yeah, of mm-hmm. it. yeah it's 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 absolutely great. Um, let's talk a little bit about your parents. Were they supportive of a son who had such an interest in the arts? Uh, my my parents are a story unto themselves. I love that. And you have to read Talked between the, the lines. Yeah. But a lot of my neurosis came from my yeah. parents. Um, our home was like living in both an Arthur Miller and Tennessee Williams play at the same both. time. Well, that's a combo. Um, yeah. But my father um, was um, this very handsome guy who um, um, such people as, um, let's see, Rona Barrett and uh, Miriam Hopkins and Michael Redgrave made passes at. Yeah. And... Um, and my mother was um, a beautiful belle. She was what, Rini May, Ellie May, um, and um, but um, they, there was it was not a happy home life. And uh, going into New York was my my escape. Yeah, musical theater yes, was your right. escape. Yes. Yeah. So so it but seemed like they didn't have an op. They they didn't really you didn't care really if what no. they wanted you to or not. You um, just did it. Well, um, my father was wanted to be. He changed his name 
from Sidney Cohen to Sidney Colby because he wanted to be um, a, a radio announcer. And um, he loved jazz, and he was very close to Ella Fitzgerald, among other people. Who was a frequent Yes. And in fact, it. Ella would, uh, when my grandmother was in the audience, she would start serenading her and, s- and sing things like, Bewitched, bothered Mrs. Bodney, oh, am I? And I sat down and had breakfast with her one day when um, she, she was a big fan of um, baseball games and All My Children and Broadway musicals. And she had just heard songs from an upcoming musical, and she started singing to me at breakfast. The name on everybody's lips is gonna be Roxy. I had Ella sitting, doing this preview for me. I mean, who could beat that? Yeah. Ella Fitzgerald singing Chicago. You got a private yeah. concert I, by uh, Ella Fitzgerald. I just can't even imagine. Um, Dorothy Hart. Dorothy Hart, um, yes. And, and you the did sister-in-law a sister in law of the So. Talk about maybe your relationship with her and also uh, what you two worked on together. Okay. Well, um, I met Dorothy and her husband, Teddy Hart, who um, was in such uh, films and plays as Three Men and a Horse and for whom Larry Hart wrote The Boys from Syracuse. Uh, I was introduced to them at the elevator of the Algonquin while they were staying there. And we just became very, very close. And she loved my work. And she asked me to be the uh, researcher for her biography of Lorenz Hart, Thou Swell, Thou Witty. And she does very sp- in- incredible dedication to me in yeah, the foreword. Yeah, the book, yeah. And um, she, I, I just, well, Hart and Harburg were my two main heroes. That's okay. the style that I write in. Right. And so what makes Larry Hart such a great lyricist? I know it's like the most generic question ever, but, uh, you know, he died way too young. Yes. Um, and, in and the same hospital where I was born. Well, isn't that interesting? Yes. Um, And he was known for his work with Richard Rodgers. And you can only wonder, like, what would have happened if he had lived 30 more years? And what else would he have done? Well, he turned down Oklahoma. Isn't that crazy? And he left it singing, it's 3 o'clock in the morning, according to Dorothy. (laughs) Um, But... um, what did you uh, learn about him? Well, Larry Hart, he was a very multi, a very complicated personality. Indeed. Um, and what he could do was run the gamut of emotions from being hilarious and uh, capturing the deepest emotions, sometimes in the same song. And he came up with the most brilliant, inventive rhymes. And... Um, uh, he was very playful, and he just, he was like, a, there was a childlike quality in everything he did, and um, I, I just found find his and um, Harburg's work the most humane mm-hmm. in many ways. And still well-crafted, yes, too. Yes, yes. And it makes you, he was so, uh, he struggled with so many things, and yes, you wonder sometimes, you, yes, the de- and we hear, you read about him, and you know that, but you wonder if he lived today. You know, would mm-hmm. it be the same? I yeah, don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know because it seemed like certain things he wasn't allowed to be. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, uh, Richard Rogers came out and said that he was gay. Yeah. Mrs. Hart swore he wasn't. Right. But um, yeah. the truth is pretty. It's, it's pretty complicated. He did want to be married, and I think that's reflected in his songs. He. Yeah. And uh, he died soon after his mother passed away. And he proposed to Vivian Siegel. So I don't know what was going on there, but um, he was a very complicated person. And 
Let, let me ask you, Michael, because um, obviously you're so influenced by Yip Harburg and so influenced by Lorenz Hart. Yes. If you had to pick one Yip Harburg song uh, and say, this is it, this is the, the perfect epitome of what Yip Harburg is, what song would that be? It's only a paper moon. And same question. but And that wasn't even from a musical. It was from the great Magoo. Yeah. It was from a play. Uh, and uh, it's just that he has such strong images that uh, it, it, say it's only a paper moon, uh, just as phony as it could be, but it wouldn't be make-believe if you believed in me. And um, yeah. it just captures what a lot of people feel from yeah. time to time. And the same question, uh, but for Lorenz Hart. It never entered my mind. Mm. I can sit and cry listening mm -hmm. to that. He had everything. He ostensibly had everything, and he had nothing. Yeah, right. And that's what that song is about. Were there any composers or lyricists that you li that you listened to or saw their shows on Broadway that you thought should have had a bigger career than they actually did, or maybe were, went unappreciated when they should have been more appreciated? Um. That's hard. Um, there are a lot of great people today. Great. Who um, should should have more uh, renown. That counts as well. Yes. I yeah. mean, there are fellow writers like Douglas Cohen and... Um, and 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 um, and Stephen Cole, who are friends, and, um, uh, and they're boosters of my work, so I try to boost their no, work. No, that's too. yes, Indeed. of course. But we've we've had Stephen on this podcast. Yeah. Stephen Cole. Oh yes. Yes, it was great. Took us to his. We interviewed him in his apartment. And yes. That apartment is a treasure trove of. Yes, it is. Broadway and theatrical memorabilia. And Ethel Merman. Uh, yeah. And and I I've been very lucky to have some composers that I think should have been up there. Um, um, Jack Urbant, who, um, who wrote Mrs. McThing, and, and, and Paul Katz, who wrote Tales of Tinseltown and Slay It With Music With Me, um, and, and, and Jerry Marco, who wrote Charlotte Sweet, and my current collaborator, John C. Intracasso, and um, who am I leaving out? <laughs> there are just so many. No, but I mean, it's so wonderful that you're all so supportive of one another, because yes. I think that's so important in this business. Can we, uh, I was going to ask about Mary Chase. Oh, first, yeah. Who, we, most of us know her now as the author of Harvey. Harvey, which is, yes. But there was another the, wonderful play of hers. Mrs. McThing. Um, and it had a lot of people who stayed at the Algonquin, like um, the Af well, like Helen Hayes. Um, and... Um, and Brandon DeWilde was there, too, from time to time. Oh. Um, and Iggy Wolfington. And um, she took on like a mother figure to me. And um, at Easter time, she would give me white chocolate bunny, chocolate bunnies before white chocolate became f famous. And it was sort of to, um, as an emblem of Harvey. And she told me how she wrote um, Harvey um, to cheer up. Um, the, the soldiers and um, survivors of World War II. Uh, oh. She wanted to do something to, to, to make mirth at that time. And um, then she ended up liking my work, and she asked me to do the musical version of Mrs. McThing, which at one point Harburg was in talks about doing. Um, and, um, and we worked on it, and then she passed away, and... I took over for the book writing, and we had it done at the Goodspeed Opera House. It was during their inaugural um, season at um, Chester, and it was a great experience. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For our listeners who are unaware, what was Mrs. McThing or what's the story okay. of Mrs. McThing? It's a crazy quilt of a musical um, about um, the richest woman in a society like um, Mary Chase would um, uh, reign over in, uh, in Denver. Um, and this is like d- during the 30s. And it mixed goofy gangsters and wacky witches and uh, mischievous children in this brew of a story about a woman who wishes her child were perfection, a very rich woman, and she gets her wish. This was years before um, Into the Woods, and she finds out uh, when a witch puts sort of like a um, body snatcher version of her child, (laughs) and her child is whisked into a shantyland where his dream comes true to be part of a gangster's mob, and they both hate the results and realize there's no place like home. Like a fairy tale. Yes. And it's based on a play. Yes. So, the, And the play, I believe, is available for rights. What about your version? Is there, um, it was done at good speed, and uh, there was a lot of interest. And on my 33rd birthday, after we got two reviews that said it was going to be the next Annie, the review that counted, Variety, creamed us. Uh, Once again, it's the reviews. It's always I know, amazing. I know, but I ended up writing Tales of Tinseltown yes. as, a res- as, as therapy. Um, really? Uh, yes, um, because I was in a terrible depression. Um, and um, I thought of, instead of living in the theater, what about Hollywood Babylon uh-huh. to cheer me up? Yeah. And that was the basis of Tales of Tinseltown. It was life in the theater relocated in the Hollywood Babylon movie musicals of the 30s. Where did Tales of Tinseltown get started? Um, it started at the director's company, and I've been very close to them. And um, then it had various productions, and then we had um, an all-star recording made um, yeah. a few summers ago. Who's on that? Oh, where do I begin? Right. Um, uh, let's see. Um, uh, Christina Bianco, uh-huh. Clea Blackhurst, uh, Harriet Harris... Um, uh, Tony Yazbek, uh, Richard Kine, uh, Nat Chandler, mm-hmm. um, who have I forgot? Allison Frazier. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell us about the Musical Theater Lab and Stuart Austin. Oh, yes. Because I think this is a really important mm-hmm. part of musical theater history and, and a time when well, now we have the BMI Workshop, we have ASCAP, we have all these places that writers can go to, but this was a time when there wasn't exactly the de- developmental place. No, um, Can you speak a I was, bit about that? I was lucky enough to be a founding member of two um, 
pivotal organizations, one being um, Bill Tyne's New Amsterdam Theater Company, yeah. which led to and musicals we will definitely and concerts. talk about him and that company for um, sure. And the other was the Stuart Austral Musical Theater Lab, which began at St. Clement's. And it was the first nonprofit organization for the development of new musicals. And the first show that was done there was The Robber Bridegroom. And um, Alfred Urey and Robert Wallman had practically given up. Right. And uh, they had uh, Flora Roberts, their agent, yeah. recommended this piece. <laughs> and um, we were so we had so few utensils in our um, office that I brought in my typewriter, f when we still had typewriters, right. for Alfred Urey to do some of his rewrites on the Robert Bridegroom. Right. And um, I also, oh, there are so many stories to tell. Eudora Welty, whose novella that was based on, yeah. stayed at the Algonquin. And I got the original cast, which included that good old Southern boy, Raul Julia, um, <laughs> as, uh, as Jamie Lockhart, um, and the people who opened on Broadway, like Rhonda Coulet and uh, Ernie Sabella. Um, and we had dinner with... Um, we, 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 with the great Eudora Welty at the Algonquin. Yeah. And they got to meet her after the show had played. Yeah. And, um, and Jerry Friedman, who was the director, and Alfred and Robert, who incidentally is related through marriage to my wife. <laughs> um, and um, anyway, but my mentor was the artistic director, um, Stephanie Copeland. And she's the one who believed in the Robber Bridegroom. Oh, yeah. And uh, so much of it was just improvised. And um, we had rehearsals. Um, and for the first half of the three weeks of rehearsal, uh, the cast was imp improvising an opening number mm -hmm. called Look at Me, which was the first thing that was cut from the show. <laughs> <laughs> I love Classic. that. Um, so many of the people that you you cut your teeth with have had, so, including yourself, have right. such incredible careers. Yes. Right? You must be so proud of them. Well, everybody. I mean, like Kristen Chenoweth got her actor's equity card in Animal Crackers, which I wrote special material for That's at right. the Paper Mill Playhouse. And then she ended up doing the, the, the comparable role to Charlotte Sweet in Ludlow Lad, my prequel yeah. to Charlotte Sweet. Right. So where did the idea for the Ludlow Lad come from? Okay. Um, I had done um, a musical version with Gerald J. Marco of um, Time Remembered Leocadia mm -hmm. by Ennui, and uh, Maria Kornilova and Carolyn Mignini were in it, and Igor Gavin from uh, Hello, Dolly. Oh and um, they liked my work so much at this theater called um, the Lyric Theater of New York, they asked me if I had a Christmas show. And I actually am a Jew who loves Christmas. <laughs> But um, uh, but a lot of Southern Jews did. I used to talk to Alfred Urey about it. Yes. Um, and um, so I said, no, I haven't, but I can write you one. And so in 10 days, all sung and all rhymed, I wrote the, wow. the initial libretto of Ludlow Lad. And a girl came in who had the highest voice I'd ever heard called Mara Beckerman, and she complained that she was non-equity and no one would cast her. Wow. And I wrote Charlotte Sweet for her because she was so great and loved the lad, and Kristen Chenoweth played that part later. Right. And, and did you just create the story out of thin air? Yeah. I just, in 10 days? I, 
Uh, yeah, I, okay. I, 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 I took a lot of Grimm's fairy tales and Hans Christian Andersen and, um, and played a lot of Christmas yeah. carols. I, I do that. I play a lot of the genre that I'm yeah. working in, and I just absorb it, and right. it just came to me. How long between uh, Ludlow Lad and Charlotte Sweet? Because Charlotte Sweet is, is something about a year we year and know and a half. about. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then um, Charlotte Sweet. Let's talk about that. Yes. Um, it was... It's chronicled in the book, and we I've listened, been yes. listening to it for years and years oh. and years, and yes, I've always enjoyed it. You are one of the you are yes. one of those people. Yes. Huh? Well, we, we love both it. Are. I always love to hear that. It, I mean, I've had people on Facebook say it's their favorite show. Yeah. Oh, it was, yeah. it was yeah. I, and it, now we, some people might say it's a cult classic. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. it was an it's an English hall. Musical, Bef- before yes. Bef- before Edwin Drew, Edwin Drew did yes. that. Though Alison Fraser did them both. <laughs> <laughs> Connective tissue. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, how did you develop Love the Lad into that uh, story? And then, you know, because that's an original musical as well. Right. Um, well, here I had this Victorian piece, uh, Ludlow Lad, and uh, my uh, resident photographer, Elizabeth Walinski, had me go to this place that um, that weekly did music halls. And she said, you know, if you ever do a sequel to, to, to Ludlow Lad, you should do a musical setting. Mm-hmm. So I combine the three genres that were popular at the turn of the century in Victorian times, which were Gilbert and Sullivan type operetta yeah. and music. A call and melodrama, and uh, made Charlotte Sweet, which I wrote for for inspired by Maureen Beckerman, who had this who incredibly high voice. And I don't know where the, the ideas came from me. Everyone thinks I'm a pothead and I don't take drugs. <laughs> but what is the story of Charlotte Sweet for it's our just, audiences? It's, well, it's, it's about the highest voice known to man in Victorian England, who becomes the star attraction of a group of um, performers called the Circus of Voices, where everyone has a freak voice. And what was unique about Charlotte Sweet was that the vocal qualities of the people, like the instrumentation in Peter and the Wolf, is representative of their personalities right. as well. Right, right. And I don't think that's ever been done since. No. I, I think it's a great no. Yeah. Boy. It's really a fantastic and show. Sung through? Order, what? Almost sung through, isn't it? It, it is it's, entirely yeah. sung through. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, um, oh, oh, so sorry. As was Tales of Tinseltown originally, but I realized it needed to be transformed into a book musical with a lot of it sung through. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, this The answer to this question might change depending on the project, but as a writer, what do you hope audiences take away after spending an evening with one of your stories? I've written shows that are just for fun, even though, um, as my therapist will tell you, they were venting my ex- life's experience, and I cry when I see Charlotte Sweet, I cr- and, and Tales of Tinseltown especially, because that's, yeah. that's sort of autobiographical. Um, but I want them to be moved, but I want them... Um, I, I, I love playing with rhyme the way Larry Hart and, um, and, and Yip Harburg did. Um, but sometimes, like my musical about adoption, which was developed by Tada, um, has done a lot um, during adoption month. Um, and in that case, um, it's, I mean, I can write, like Larry Hart, um, songs that really tap into emotions. I try to do that. Yeah. I try to be clever. Uh, but I also, um, I write these 
these lyrics entirely in rhyme that are monologues and uh, characterize right. the people. In Charlotte's Suite, you are introduced to characters through their music hall turns, which also um, tell you just what you need to know about the characters. Like um, uh, Merle Louise played uh, Cecily McIntosh, who's bubble-headed and bubble-voiced. Right. And Charlotte Sweet is high-voiced, and she's a high character. Polly and, Penn? Uh, well, Polly Penn was schizophrenic. Oh. And Polly Penn got that role by accident huh. because she had gone to school, Ithaca College, with my original director, a director I owe a, a tremendous debt to, um, Edward Stone, um, who um, wanted to cast Polly as Charlotte Sweet. And I wrote Charlotte for Mara. Right. And sort of as compensation, I let uh, Polly be the original musical director, and we gave her the schizophrenic role. <laughs> and everyone thought we looked far and wide. And this was my way of keeping it in the family. Oh. And everyone thought she was perfect, and Mara got a Drama Desk nomination, and everyone was happy. And the show the show was received well. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. What theater was it playing at again? Um, it played at the Cheryl Crawford, the West Side Arts. Mm-hmm. And we had sort of crisscross with Little Shop of Horrors. Right, same They season. looked at our theater. We looked at their theater. We wanted the one we ended up with. We had the same PR person. Huh. Um, oh, wow. But they kind of overshadowed us. Well, so, yeah. But who knew at the time? Yeah. I mean. But for our listeners, Charlotte Sweet is just a fabulous score. And uh, everyone great should. Lyrics. Great Action. lyrics. Yeah. And everyone should take a listen to it. Now, also, another favorite of mine is Marilyn Monroe. Okay. Okay, what's That's this one story? Of the, well, I mean, she would come to the Algonquin. Both of her husbands would stay there. I mean, Joe DiMaggio was a fa- favorite f- friend of my grandparents. Uh, and Arthur Miller wrote part of The Crucible um, there. And um, anyway, so she became friendly with my grandmother. Mm-hmm. And one day, my grandmother was walking around the corner from the Algonquin, and she ran into Marilyn. And she was wearing this gorgeous white mink. And my grandmother said, Marilyn, that's the most beautiful mink you have on. And Marilyn said, you think that's something? You should see what's underneath. And she opened up her mink. She wasn't wearing anything. And I get to tell that my grandmother was flashed by Marilyn Monroe. Oh, my God. <laughs> to be so lucky. I to be your grandma. For I wish moment. I'd been with my yes, grandmother indeed. that day, yes. Um, you know, the book is so funny. Uh, the Algonquin Kid, it's, it's so funny and it's, you know, it's so revelatory. And I found myself being so incredibly moved uh, by a lot of the anecdotes that were in there. Yes. And one that really touched me um, was um, Vivian Lee. Oh, yes. Vivian Lee not, never got over the fact that. Uh, she and Laurence Olivier went their separate ways. Mm. And um, she made a special request because Laurence Olivier uh, fell in love with the Algonquin from the first day he came to New York. And Vivian Lee visited the Algonquin and asked to see his particular suite because she wanted to feel a certain closeness to him. No, it's just... You, that, that got me. That, yeah, me real, that really, really got me. Um, why did you choose not to continue on in the family business? Because your, your grandparents were doing this. Your father did it before he passed. Um, and, and you did not get into this industry. Um, you know, th- there were announcements that um, the, uh, the family uh, members were not interested. I was interested. 
but um, I think th- th- there was a lot of storm and drung over uh, from among family members because of the Algonquin, mm-hmm. and I think it was responsible for my father's death. Um, he, he he became because it was so difficult for him to um, live up to being the son-in-law and doing everything right at the Algonquin, and he took to drink. Right. And right. he had an accident, and uh, yeah. he he died. Way and too young. There were constant fights at our home, and uh, so uh, there was that. Uh, but I don't like to dwell on that. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, no, I but the, the, the fact is, the Algonquin was so, sold when the tax laws changed. And my grandfather and my um, uncle Andrew, who was the husband of uh, my mother's sister Barbara, and who was uh, another manager, and who uh, reopened the Oak Room, he and Don Smith, the, the, um, the founder of the Mabel Mercer Foundation, mm. they reopened the Algonquin in the 80s. Well, um, and anyway... Um, what was the, the Oak Room? The well, during the late 30s, uh, Greta Keller uh, played a cabaret uh, in the Algonquin for a short time. It closed during World War II, and it was Don Smith and my Uncle Andrew's dream to reopen the Oak Room as a cabaret. Mm. And it, uh, they had thought of doing it for, with Mabel Mercer, but she didn't end up ever going there. Uh-huh. But um, such people as Michael Feinstein and Harry Connick and Diana Krull had their careers launched, and um, Steve Ross opened the place, oh, and yes. it Sylvia. was a place for Sylvia Sims, who was very close to me, um, and who made a hit album of um, uh, I Could Have Danced All Night, which was written at the Alcon. There it is. And Julie Wilson, and there are so many others. What made that room so special to perform in? Because it was like it was like taking a train back in time, Mm -hmm. and you would go there and you would feel like it was a time warp. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there was just something that was dizzyingly. Present and past at the same time. Indeed, and and then how long did that did that venue last? Um, it because I don't it, think it's still there. No, it, in, in fact, the whole the whole theater, the whole the whole room has been reconfigured. Yeah. Um, but I'm hoping if it came back once, it can come back again. You never know. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Um, sometimes we do a little like word association games, okay. whatever comes to your head. Uh-oh. Oh, yes, yeah, yes, okay? yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So first and foremost, we talked about it earlier, Bill Tynes. Yes. We've mm. talked about the New Amsterdam Irene Theater Dunn. Company. Uh, what? Irene Dunn. Oh. He adored Irene Dunn. We used to have little uh, shows of her movies, and he would, he would communicate with her while she was still alive. Right. And she was, I went to this tribute uh, to Rogers and Hart in California as Dorothy Hart's guest, and among the people there were Mae West, mm. Helen Ford, their frequent leading lady, and Irene Dunn, who'd been in She's My Baby. She's yeah. the, she was the ingenue in She's My Baby. Amazing. Wow. And he started this new Amsterdam, Amsterdam Theater which we Company. we talked about with Larry Moore, who yes. was a guest on our show. Yes. He, uh, did you, you worked, I mean, you knew about that guy. I mean, you saw stuff I, with them. And then I was um, the treasurer, a founding yeah. member, mm-hmm. um, one of their frequent writers. I wrote the continuity for so some of So our show. listeners don't know a lot about the... I mean, it's not around anymore, and we lost yes. Bill Tynes way too early. So what was the purpose, and what well, did they do? Bill Tynes was another musical comedy nut, like right. us all. Yeah. And uh, his dream was to do 
uh, neglected musicals in concert. And um, there had been something of a predecessor at Town Hall, uh, but it was not with a full uh, orchestra. Mm -hmm. And he had celebrity performers. Um, we opened with New Moon um, and um, uh, the, 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 um, uh, it, it was with um, Judy Kay and, um, uh, and among the people who, who performed in these things were Ron Raines yeah. and Susan Lucci and um, there were just so many people yeah. and um, the other founding member uh, was Evans Hale and um, uh -huh. I, I got to write continuity for some of them. Right. Um, and, um, and you would host it, or host it, you would read oh, I the, hosted, you know, the... Uh, they, they did, um, the second show they did was um, R Victor Herbert's uh, Eileen, and we went back to the Algonquin, and we had a not? party, and we rehearsed at the Algonquin, we rehearsed Desert Song. Full orchestrations. We, full orchestrations, the original orchestrations mm. that Larry Moore helped reconstruct, yeah. um, and he did the same for Jubilee and a lot of their shows. Right. And um, we had um, the first fundraiser at the Algonquin um, in um, the Stratford suite. And um, Paula Lawrence, who'd been in One Touch of Venus, oh. um, she performed songs from One Touch of Venus. Amazing. And I told Ben Bagley how great she was. And he ended up capturing them on, uh, on, on his, his recordings, yeah. Kurt Vile. We got to talk about yes. we Another name yes. we try to yes. bring up as much as oh, possible yes. is Ben Bagley, yeah. because he was quite a personality. Yes. Well, what was he like? Well, he was one of my great champions, yeah. and so I loved him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he was a character, mm -hmm. and he loved having dinners at the Algonquin, <laughs> and he was always lacking money. Right. So um, and he was great. always telling stories about people, and I and he was always using words that I don't use. Oh, okay. <laughs> that tells man. us a little more. Right. Right. And but because of him, we have all of these recordings, very almost raw recordings of these revisited Yes, albums. he he restored so many lost songs. Yeah. And uh, we, I mean, there are songs like By and By from um, uh, Dearest Enemy that were lost in, uh, yeah. the, in, in, in this funny world that he brought back into the public eye right. and they became staples of the cabaret world. Yeah. And wow. we owe him a great debt. We do. We do. Uh, I want to throw out a little word association if I can. Okay. Uh, it's not a name. It's an object. And the object is the New York Drama Critics. And there was a little controversy. Okay. Um, my brother Douglas again. This, uh, good yes. for Douglas. I yes. love this story. Uh, well, um, long before uh, the moonlight problem the, with the Oscars. Yes. Um, there, who knows how many of how many instances there were. But the year that um, that championship season won the New York Critics Award, um, it was my want uh, to go in when the, the, the New York Drama Critics and the, the Film Society uh, voted at the Algonquin, and sometimes I would sneak in and look at the ballots afterwards. There's um, only you can do. Yes. I mean, yes. Uh, and I have some pictures of them in the book, and uh, I hope yeah. I don't get arrested no. today. No. no. But um, 
I was at Northwestern, and my brother had gone into the Stratford suite, my brother Douglas. Um, he was a gr- he's a great pianist, and he was practicing piano, and then he looked on the table. This was after the drama, drama uh, c- critics had voted, and there were some ballots on the, on, on, on the table, and they had announced that the winner was Sticks and Bones for best play. And my brother looked at the ballots, and by... Dorothy Hart was in the Algonquin at that time, and he took the ballots up to her, and he said, there's something wrong. I don't think that Sticks and Bones won. I'm tallying up, and it looks like that championship season won. And uh, Dorothy uh, Hart said, you must reveal this. And Douglas called me at Northwestern and said, what should I do? What should I do? It's going to be embarrassing if if they find out that I looked at the ballots. Um, And I said, you must let truth prevail. Right? (laughs) And um, so the next day, he called my Uncle Andrew, who was managing the hotel, and my uncle called Henry Hughes, who was the president of the um, New York Drama Critics, and Henry Hughes took the rap for miscalculating. I think it was Clyde Barnes. It feels like a conspiracy. Yeah. When I read it, I was right. like, this feels like a conspiracy. I think it was, but this I feels like a little shady. Um, anyway, to me. Um, but um, so the announcement went out that um, that it was a mistake, and they gave um, a special honorary citation to um, Sticks and Bones. And since the public, New York Public Theater produced them both, everyone Everybody was happy. Won. Yeah. Okay. Yes. But still, that is just like. Yes. What? Do you feel a great responsibility being um, the. I don't know if you're the Algonquin's unofficial historian or you are the official historian. I don't know if you've ever been... I've sort of become that. Yeah. Do, you, do yeah. you feel a great responsibility of keeping these stories alive and keeping these people alive in the memories of future generations? Someone's got to do the job. <laughs> 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 and it's my honor. And you, you're, you're honored by yeah. doing it. Did yes. you know you were always going to write a, a book? I yeah. mean, when did this come to fruition? And, and Oh, it's a long story. Um, I ended up... For, for, it's, it's a complicated story, um, but I was asked to do it, and I put it off for 10 years. Oh. Um, and then my friend Sandy Durrell, who uh, is the editor of www.theaterpizzazz.com, um, I asked her if I could test the waters by doing a serial version right. of it. Okay. And so I did chapter after chapter. Yeah. And then when I had 20 chapters, I said, you know, I've got enough for a book. Oh. So I saved five extra chapters for the published version uh, that was put out by Bear Manor Media. And you can get it through their website or through Amazon.com, oh. as you can my albums. And it's, f- yes, and it's full of uh, amazing photographs. And yeah. I mean, every page has right. some sort of anecdote or, or, or photograph on it. I mean, I'm, <laughs> Rob's like scrolling through it right I've now. I've got the image. Um, right but here, it, yeah. I mean, it, it, you must have labored a long time yeah. on amassing all of and that. And there's also an audio book available now That's that I narrated, um, and we have background little vignettes from yeah. Steve Ross and Michael Levine and others, and I have the actual recording that um, Julie Wilson made of a song I wrote with Gerald J. Marco that was the cl- that was done at the memorial for my grandparents. Uh, and um, the lyric closes my book. Yeah. And Julie Wilson's performance of that lyric is what closes the audio tape. Oh. The audio book, I, I should say. Hear oh, that. that's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, you know, before you came in, one of the things that Kevin and I were discussing was this idea that nowadays, in 2017, there aren't places that artists will congregate with the same amount of reverence that you'll going to the Algonquin or yes. going to the plaza. A round table. A round sorts. table. Yeah. I mean, we don't know where there are, if there are any in the city. It's so I have two. On their people's, on kids' phones. Yes. And that's oh, the round okay. t- oh, No, I'm just saying, I mean, oh, I yeah, feel yeah, like yeah. people <laughs> don't do that any, I mean, it's. That the, that the witticism comes out oh, on social media? Um, perhaps. Twitter. Um, well, I, I have a friend, um, uh, Randy Miller-Levine. She, she has these things at Sardi's. Okay. Because Sardi's is, I feel like, the only, and, and the Algonquin, but yeah. it's still different than it was yeah. in, when right. you were living there. Sardi's has the same sort of, uh, that's not owned by the Marriott anymore. No. Uh, ever was. Uh, so I, I try to think of these institutions, because we lose them all. Theaters yeah. get built, hotels get built, and they get taken down. Howard yeah. Johnson's gone. I know, you I know? know. And so and it, it, just the coverage of the, the 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 importance that the theater deserves and the coverage it used to get and those weekly Hirschfeld caricatures and right. I was honored to have you know um Hirschfeld was another person that um was one of my idols and when I did my first musical based on the wrong box uh, with my brother Douglas, he was a wonderful composer, yeah. um, I auditioned those songs with Nina Hirschfeld. Oh my goodness. Uh. And, um, and then my grandparents knew Al Hirschfeld. Um, but, uh, and Charlotte Sweet, when he came to but see... But he was a huge fan of Charlotte Sweet. Yeah. And when I called, uh, because um, I wanted him to do... Um, a caricature for the album of Charlotte Sweet. And his wife, Dolly, who um, she replaced um, Mary Martin in One Touch of... in in, in, um, um, Lute Song. And she um, was in Hitchcock film, I Confess. And she got on the phone and she said, Hello, yeah, this is Mrs. Hirschfeld. (laughs) And I said, well, Mrs. Hirschfeld... Um, this is Michael Colby, and I auditioned with your your daughter, um, Nina, and she said, yeah, and you know my grandparents, the Bodneys of the Algonquin, and she said, yeah, and I wrote Charlotte Sweet, and she said, you wrote Charlotte Sweet? You wrote Charlotte Sweet? Oh, get on the phone! Aww. And when I went there and saw the caricature, I could dive in. Uh, we'll post it, was, it. We'll post yeah. it online. Because uh, well, it is on the album. Yes. And it Great is to meet a, your heroes. Yes. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, my last question for you, Michael, is this, which is the Algonquin Roundtable was something that was so uh, synonymous with New York City. If you could create your own Algonquin Roundtable, mm-hmm. five people from anyone uh, that had a major artistic influence on you to someone that you would just love to hear go, who would be at your round table? Um, Mary Chase, Thornton Wilder, um, Harpo Marx. I didn't know her, but I'd sure like to invite Dorothy Parker back. Four, yeah. And my grandfather. That's sweet. Well, while we are not allowed to sit at the table, I hope we can have a booth next to it so we can eavesdrop in. Yeah. Uh, and in the meantime, until that booth becomes available to, for us, the book is called The Algonquin Kid. Yep. It's available on Amazon. And the other place, Michael, was? Oh, uh, uh, BeermannerMedia.com. Great. And, and the albums that we can hear your music, Charlotte Sweet. Oh, they're on um, J Records. Uh-huh. Uh, and they can also be found on Amazon. And your website. Your website's got everything. Yeah, sure does. And in, in an audio book. 
as well. There's an audio version of the right. Algonquin Kid. And you can find all those details on www.michaelcolby.com, and there's a www.thealgonquinkid.com. Excellent. Uh, it really is a fantastic book, and it's it's a glimpse into a time gone by, but your writing makes us feel like we're right there standing in the hotel watching everybody pass by. So you've, you've given us something really, really special. So, Michael, thank you so much for preserving all these memories. And till next time, everyone. Bye, everybody. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Gapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.